I invite you to stand with me for the reading of Scripture, which is Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. Luke 23, verse 50. Uh, We're at the end of this uh, chapter this evening. Hear now the word of God. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. This is God's word. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer now. Our God and Father, we are thankful for your inspired word, which shows us the way of salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. We're thankful once again for time spent in the Gospel of Luke, considering all the details that you have recorded for us for our benefit. And uh, we ask that you would teach us tonight, Holy Spirit, open this word to us, that it might benefit us. Uh, We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we return to the Gospel of Luke this evening, I remind us all of how important these chapters are of Holy Scripture. We are standing on holy ground as we behold the redemptive work of God in history. We are reading about the most important events that ever happened. And what we do with these accounts of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection are very important. They are consequential matters. They are life and death matters for each of us. The Gospels present to us a a series of events so momentous and world-changing that it will change our lives, what we do with these accounts. And I say this once again so that we give our full attention to the words that are before us. I do not want us to approach these portions of Scripture in a sort of ho-hum way, as if we're paging through a dog-eared book that we've read so many times and is of little interest to us. Uh, uh, God forbid that that would be how we approach uh, the Scriptures here in Luke 23. And so this portion of Luke's Gospel brings us once again to the center of the Gospel itself. We looked last time at Jesus' death upon the cross as he breathed his last, as uh, there was the various miraculous events that took place with the veil being torn. And now we come to the moment of his burial uh, here in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And uh, last week we read 1 Corinthians 15, which Paul gives as the summary of the gospel. I will read that once again because it's very important for us. Paul writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 
And so the the burial of our Lord Jesus ought not to be passed over. It's actually an important part of this whole sequence of events that God had ordained. And that's what we have tonight. You'll notice that the Apostles' Creed, it wisely includes the statement, He was buried. Uh, It mentions that very specifically, that Jesus really was buried. And we might look at this passage and see it as a sort of intermission in the gospel narrative. And there's a degree to which that's the case. It's kind of an intermission, as it were, between the first act, his death, and then the final act, his resurrection. Uh, Although there's still important things happening here in this intermission period. And what Luke uh, chooses to focus upon in our passage is uh, the act of Joseph of Arimathea in providing a tomb for Jesus, asking for the body of Christ, And then we also see these women, these Christ-loving women who are there to serve Jesus in the context of his burial. So that's what we'll look at is these different figures that are important in our narrative. So let's look first at Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man, He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, what's the practical importance of Joseph's in this story? Well, we remember that Joseph was a timid and secretive disciple of the Lord Jesus, We're told in John 19 that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews. And I think Joseph's important for us because, uh, like Joseph, some of us can be tempted towards a timidity, uh, a fearfulness of what others think if we openly associate with Jesus, uh, concern about the reproach that that might bring to us, concern about what people will think. And it was... uh, God's decision here, God's determination that Joseph would be here at just the right time to minister to Jesus in this way. Now, what else are we told of Joseph? (coughs) We learn that Joseph was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the same body which had judged the Lord Jesus as deserving of death and handed him over to Pilate. It's amazing to think about this one man who was willing to associate with Christ and to ask for his body. Here was the Sanhedrin that had condemned Christ. They had hated him. And here is this man who says, I'm going to take care of his body. I'm going to ask for the body of Jesus. We don't know whether uh, Joseph stood up verbally in the proceedings when Jesus was on trial or not. There's no evidence of that. But we do see that he was... He had not consented to what they were doing. He had not entered into their decision. Perhaps he withheld any sort of vote. Perhaps he had not said anything. And we might wonder, Joseph, shouldn't you have stood up and you should have said something? You should have defended Christ. Well, it was God's determination that this would be the point at which Joseph entered into the picture and served the Lord Jesus. Uh, We're told by Luke that he was a good and it was a righteous man, so he was committed to truth and righteousness, which means if 
you were at the trial of Christ, you couldn't support the trial. You had all these false witnesses coming up and all these lies being made about Jesus. You couldn't participate in that and affirm that. We also learned that he was waiting for the kingdom of God, and we'll consider the implications of what that might mean in a moment. But I'd like to point out about Joseph that it took courage to do what he did. And we're told, actually, by Mark in the Gospel of Mark, that he took courage. It says in Mark 15, verse 42, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, why did it take courage to do this? Well, remember, this is a crucifixion. This is a very shameful, horrific death that had taken place. The Romans, of course, reserving this this act of punishment for the lowest of criminals. Uh, It was a very shameful thing. Jesus was considered a criminal uh, and a blasphemer. And often in the Roman world, when somebody was crucified, they, they would just let the body stay there on the cross as a public example to all that passed by. It was a deterrent to the crimes that people committed that led to such a terrible execution. Uh, Tacitus, in his uh, annals, his Roman history, he says, the Romans normally forbade burial for people sentenced to death. Most victims of crucifixion were left to rot on the cross or given a dishonorable burial. So sometimes they'd just be left on the cross for days. Sometimes they would be taken down and effectively thrown in a trash heap. But the Jews would not allow that to take place, you see. The Jews had certain commitments to the law of God, even externally. And the law of God in Deuteronomy 21 forbid leaving a body upon the tree, the one that had been hanged and sentenced and cursed by God, was not to remain on the tree. And so in the context of this Passover taking place and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews were especially committed to a kind of Uh, ceremonial sanctity, and they were committed to making sure something happened to this body. But what if Joseph had not intervened? What what would have happened to the body of Christ? Who would have taken on this role? Who would have made themselves unclean to clean up uh, and take care of the body of Christ and to prepare it for burial? So Joseph took courage in doing this. He stepped out. He was willing to think, uh, to have the Sanhedrin think poorly of him, perhaps. He was willing to uh, perhaps be mocked by the Romans for even caring about such a thing. It's like, why do you want the body of, of this criminal blasphemer? Why are you interested in that? And I think we can see something here of what it means to associate, to identify with the cross of Christ. That's what I think Joseph was doing here. He was saying, I I receive this man. I I care about this man. I care about what he has done. Whether or not he fully understood it, I don't know. But it was love and it was courage that drove him to do this act of asking for the body of Jesus. Verse 53, we read, after getting permission, that Joseph took the body of Christ down wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. It seems that Joseph himself was actually 
involved in this act of burial. Maybe, I'm sure he probably had some helpers uh, assisting him, but he would make himself unclean by participating in this act of burial, by providing the tomb himself, and then laying Jesus in that place. What do we learn from Joseph's actions? Why, Why does Luke and the other gospel writers call attention to what he did? I think we can learn that it takes courage to associate with Christ. It takes courage to associate with the shame and dishonor that the cross of Christ brings and that it had brought at that time especially. But to be dishonored by the world, we remember, is to be honored by Christ. To be shamed before the world is certainly worth it when we have a far greater treasure, Christ himself. And so Joseph stepped out. He was willing to step out, even if, even if the Jewish Sanhedrin would have not had wanted anything to do with him thereafter. And perhaps the Gospels also highlight Joseph because he, he was a man that went from timidity to courage. Uh, this is the call for us as well, brothers and sisters, is to go from a position of timidity and fear and the fear of man to a, sense, uh, to a place of courage, to a place of standing up for the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, yes, my hope is found in his cross and in his resurrection. Now we also know that, as the passage tells us, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. The text tells us he himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, what does this mean of Joseph? What was he anticipating as he waited for the kingdom of God? We can't know for sure how much Joseph understood of what was taking place, how much he had pieced the puzzle together and taken all these pieces of the prophecies and said, this is what's happening. But I think we should remember that the resurrection prediction of Christ was somewhat publicly known. It's true that he had told his disciples about this a number of times and they failed to understand it. But even in Matthew 27, we learn that the, the chief priests are anticipating the potential that the disciples are going to steal his body on the third day because they said he predicted his resurrection. So there was news swirling about this potential resurrection to take place. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 63, it says... Speaking to Pilate, the chief priests say, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. So they knew about this. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him. So they were concerned about the potential for deception, and so they said, Let's seal the tomb. Let's get a big rock. Let's get guards. And Pilate arranged all of that to take place. And so this tells us that Joseph very well may have anticipated the resurrection of Christ. Uh, We're surmising somewhat based upon what we know about the passage. We do not know for sure whether Joseph did. But we know that he hoped and waited for the coming of the kingdom of God. And as he thought about the kingdom promises of God, he was waiting for that glorious kingdom of the Lord to come. He was waiting for the promises of the prophets to come to pass. And so he anticipated something to take place here. And maybe he wondered, will indeed he rise upon the third day? And so Joseph here is an important picture here of courageous service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, 
And brothers and sisters, this too is our calling. If, if our convictions are clear about who Jesus is, then our convictions will influence our actions at just the right moment of time and need. There are times in which we are called, in particular, to stand up for Christ, to say, yes, I follow him. And who among us, perhaps, is in that place of Joseph, who has long been a secret secret disciple, but unwilling to make that discipleship known to a watching world? And maybe not literally secretive, like we won't make our profession known to anybody, but in the sense in which we are called to particular times particular situations in which we need to stand up and speak. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on Joseph of Arimathea, he, he gave a good exhortation at the end. These were his last words to the congregation as he was preaching. He said, Joseph of Arimathea, where are you? Come forward, man, come forth. Your time has come. Come forth now. If you followed Christ secretly, throw secrecy to the winds. Henceforth be bravest of the brave among the bodyguard of Christ, who follow him wherever he goes. Have no fear, nor thought of fear, but count it all joy if you fall into manifold trials for his name's sake, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. So that's his call for us, to come out. Like Joseph of Arimathea came at just the right moment to come and to stand and to speak, just as he did. Next, we look at verse 53 and 54. This describes the actual burial of Christ very briefly given here of of the details. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. The Gospels make a point of emphasizing that Jesus really died. Jesus really was buried in the tomb. Jesus had prophesied that for Three days and three nights, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth. And so the actual death and burial of Christ, the actual burial of Christ is a very important matter that we need to consider. The burial of Christ, the fact that he really died, that he was really put in the tomb, is in essence the seal upon his atoning work, that he actually paid the consequences of sin. Scriptures tell us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he did actually suffer the wages of sin, which is to really and truly die. It is through the death of Christ that we are saved. And sometimes when we talk about these things, we we make the cross, the cross of Christ, and then the death of Christ almost synonymous in our minds because that's what eventually happened as Christ suffered upon the cross. He died. And so, brothers and sisters, our, our Lord Jesus, he died so that the sting of death would be removed from you and from me. He was buried so that your burial would not be an entrance into judgment, but a passing into eternal life. Whenever that day comes for any of us, our burial is just a passing to be with Christ. And as you behold the burial of your Savior, you should know with certainty that death is a defeated foe because we already know what happens in Luke 24. We know that on the first day of the week, death could not hold him any longer. It was customary in these kinds of uh, burial situations, a man like Joseph of Arimathea would have put Jesus in his tomb that had been hewn out of the rock, 
And they would leave the body for a period of time until the body had decomposed. And once the body had decomposed, they would remove it, and they would often put the bones of the body into an ossuary box, and then they would bury that somewhere else. Sometimes these tombs hewn out of the rock were temporary holding places for the body. But thanks be to God, there was no possibility of Jesus being held by death. There was no possibility of him decomposing or seeing corruption. He could never be placed in an ossuary box because he rose from the dead on the first day. And the Gospels also emphasize for us how difficult it would be for Jesus to have faked his death Uh, for Jesus uh, to have had some sort of conspiracy and hoax that played out to rescue his body from the tomb. Of course, there's been all of these theories over the the centuries that have been proposed, such as the swoon theory that Jesus, he, he pretended death upon the cross, and then they took him down, and then he laid there for a while in the tomb, and then he woke up, and then he pushed the stone away, and as you can see, there's a lot of problems with this as you think about how such a thing could even be possible. But the scriptures, the gospels, emphasize that this was, this was a situation where he was really dead and that stone was not moving on its own. He couldn't move that stone on his own to have faked such a thing. And it also emphasizes that people saw where he was buried. They saw his body being put in the tomb and then the tomb being sealed. And the, the matter of... The stone was actually a matter of concern for the women. They did not know, how are we going to get in? They were coming to uh, anoint his body, and they were going to do so on the first day of the week, but they didn't know how to get in. They said, who's going to roll away the stone for us? Mark 16, verse 3. They said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And of course, we we learn in, in the Gospel of Matthew that it was the angel of God that had the power to bring this stone back, to break the seal of the tomb, as it were, and for Christ to arise in the power of the Spirit. All of these details are given to us, brothers and sisters, to give us a certainty of the death of Christ, as well as his resurrection. The Gospels emphasize these details that we might have that certainty of what took place on our behalf. So next, we look at the the account of the women. Uh, Luke details something of their love for Christ and desiring to anoint his body for burial. Luke 23, verse 55. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. It is interesting to me that it is only the women who saw all three aspects of 1 Corinthians 15 with their own eyes. They saw the death of Christ. They saw the burial. There's no indication that the other disciples had gone to the tomb. And that they were the first on the scene to see the empty tomb. Now, it doesn't appear that they literally saw the actual resurrection as it took place, though the guards saw something of that. But the women here saw all three aspects in person of 1 Corinthians 15. 
Uh, Luke has often emphasized the role of women in Jesus' ministry. He mentions them many times, like in Luke 8, the women who followed him and they provided for Jesus in his ministry. And here, at the point of Jesus' death, his disciples have largely abandoned him. Where are the disciples coming to anoint his body with spices on that day? Where, Where are they? It's the women. It's the love of the women here for Christ. Now, as we look at these women, we we can maybe perhaps say there's some very positive things here, and there's maybe something else negative that we could observe, but mostly positive, I would say. (laughs) We can commend the love that these women had for Jesus. They cared about him. They cared enough to come see the tomb. They cared enough to prepare spices and fragrant oils, and, and they also showed their commitment to godliness. They rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. They said, well, we're not going to go to the tomb on the Sabbath. We'll rest as God has commanded, and then we'll go on the first day, and we will anoint his body. And this is love in action. This is love that did not end when Jesus died. Uh, to some degree, the disciples said, okay, well, it's over. For now, uh, they were fearful and scared and had run off. And, and yes, there seemed to be a little bit of following Jesus with Peter and John, uh, John at least at the cross. But they did not follow through like these women did. Uh, sometimes when, when faith is weak and when love is weak, it's often the women of God who keep things going. It's fascinating how God works in his providence. Uh, the women continue in this role of ministry, of the ministry of love and affection that they had for Christ. Now, as we look at this account, as we seek to kind of make some application of this, uh, we know that we cannot care for Jesus' physical body in the way that they did uh, for two very obvious reasons. One is that he's no longer buried and dead, and that the other is he's at the, he's at the right hand of God. So we can't care for his physical body in the way that these women were going to do. But we very much can care for his body today, can't we? How do we demonstrate love for Jesus and care for his body? We love his saints who make up his body. We wash the feet of the saints. We care for the brothers and sisters who are in need. We care for every single member of his body and every different part. We sacrifice ourselves for Jesus and his people. We can still follow in the same footsteps of these loving women. Now, but I said there was something negative here. And what is that? Well, I think perhaps we could critique their lack of faith. (laughs) Why would you anoint the body that was going to rise again on the first day of the week? It's interesting to contemplate. We see their love, but then... Perhaps a weakness of faith here, not seeing, not anticipating. We're not going to have to anoint his body on the first day of the week because he's going to be alive. Uh, We see this with the disciples in Luke 23 and 24. We're going to see this in the next chapter here. As we come to that, we're going to learn about how the disciples on the road to Emmaus were still sad about what had happened. And they're, they're talking to Christ, which is the irony of the story, right? They're talking to the risen Christ and... And they said, we had hoped that he was the Messiah that would redeem Israel. And Jesus says, okay, I I need to bring you up to speed here. And and he brings them up to speed on one of the best Old Testament uh, prophetic lessons ever told. And 
and their hearts burden within them. But this is what, what happens. It takes some convincing. It takes a strengthening of faith amongst the disciples, uh, the twelve, the other disciples, like the, the ones on the road to Emmaus. And, and the women seem to be the ones <coughs> that are the most willing to receive this message. Uh, when the women in, uh, in Luke, they go and tell the disciples that he had risen, it says that it seemed to them an idle tale. They said, ah, that's just the women making stuff up. Ignore that. That was their first response until they saw it with their own eyes. And then you have somebody like Thomas who's saying, I will not believe until I see the actual marks upon his hands. And, and Jesus is willing to condescend to that unbelief, but tells Thomas it would be far better if you had believed without seeing. And so we do see a weakness of faith, but certainly we see love in action. And so we can commend the women. We can see them as a godly example here. And these women loved Christ when he was dead. Will we love Christ now that he is alive forever? As we have once again seen the immeasurable love of Christ revealed in his cross, will this move us to loving him in return? The women beheld him dying on the cross. They beheld his love for the thief on the cross. They beheld his love for forgiving those that were hurting him. (coughs) And so the cross of Christ is this great example of the love of God. It is the very height, the apex, the the paragon of all love revealed for us. As the scripture says, herein is love revealed not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And by loving one another, brothers and sisters, we love Christ. We love the resurrected Christ. We love his body. We we honor him as Lord. Uh, we, we do exactly what these women did. So brothers and sisters, that is what we learn, I think, from this brief passage this evening from uh, Jesus' burial. And we, we have to draw the curtain, as it were, at this point and await and anticipate uh, Luke 24. Uh, but thankfully, we don't have to anticipate with any sense of uh, confusion or uh, disbelief or concern like the disciples on the road to Emmaus because we know what is coming and we know that our Lord has risen again. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you as the risen Lord and Savior over all. We thank you for your love to die for sinners like us, to take upon yourself the full penalty of sin, to satisfy the justice of God and to make a way of access into heaven forever, to redeem us from our sins. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the courage of Joseph and the love of these women, that we also would walk in the same footsteps of following Christ just as they did, as we are called to do in loving the body and in standing up for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that you bring these things to application to us tonight, and we pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen.